Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. While you're turning there, I want to share with you some exciting things going on this morning during our worship service. Of course, we got to celebrate baptism together. What an amazing opportunity it is to see someone make a decision for Christ and publicly proclaim that through baptism. We also have the privilege of two families that are with us this morning who will be sharing in our parent dedication. And after this morning's message, before we take up our tithes and offerings, I'll have them come down and introduce them to you all, ask them a few questions. And and they're going to share and pledge their commitment to raise their children in a Christ-like manner. We're excited for that as well. Isn't it great to be a part of a church that sees God moving? Amen? I'm excited that we are a part of a church that, that can look at the congregation, look at the people who come, and are able to celebrate how God is moving and how God is working. It's not just through our baptism. It's not just through the pledge of our parents. It's not just through our worship time. It's not just through the things that we do. But we are united and excited because of who it is doing these things. Sometimes we get really excited about the busyness of church. But how much more excited should we be about the God who works in and through the people of His church? This morning, we're continuing a series about the beliefs we have at First Baptist Church. And as we're looking through several passages of Scripture, there are six core beliefs that we have. This is our third message about our core beliefs. And I want to share with you briefly what our six core beliefs are. You can find them in great detail on our website, fbcrobinson.com slash beliefs. There's actually uh, somewhere around a 38 or 39 article Uh, document that has our beliefs in great detail. And we have summarized them in six core beliefs. The first one is the Bible is the word of God. We believe the Bible itself is the very words that God has for us. Secondly, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. The last time we met together, we talked about how it's only Christ who brings about salvation. Our third core belief is that God alone is eternally perfect. We also believe that man is created in God's image. The church, us, exists to serve God and to serve others. And finally, Jesus Christ will return. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack in each of these. This morning, we are looking at this third one. God alone is eternally perfect. And can I go ahead and apologize before we get started? that it is impossible for me in one sermon to talk about the character of God. Lucky for you, we didn't have church last week. That means I get to do two sermons this morning. And so you get to hear double the amount. Is that okay with you guys? An hour long? Is that? There's some heads nodding and some heads. Some people are already walking out. Wow, that was... There is no possible way that we can summarize who God is in, in half an hour or in one hour, or even if we spent all day, I will tell you, people have spent a lifetime trying to study the character of God and yet find themselves unable to fully grasp His greatness. This core belief is a great summary for what we believe about who God is, and that is God alone is eternally perfect. There are two key words there that we want to focus on this morning. He is eternal and He is perfect. Now, we're going to kind of delve into what that means for who God is this morning. But I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to study about who God is for yourself. Ask questions about the nature of who God is. 
What we're going to find is God is greater than anything we can possibly fathom. There's a particular passage this morning that speaks about the character of God, not the only one, one of many, but I think shows us a full picture of the nature of who God is. And that's Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. What's happening in Exodus 34 is Moses is getting the Ten Commandments again. He's already got them once, but while he was up receiving the Ten Commandments, what God had spoken to the people, the people are down at the foot of the mountain and get tired and restless and impatient and decide instead of waiting on God to send his commandments, they want to create their own God and they build a a golden calf. And so when Moses comes down, he sees the people worshiping this false god. Now picture this, if you will. Here's Moses with the very words of God etched in stone. God's finger wrote them on the tablets, ready to proclaim that God, the one true God, has revealed himself. And Moses finds the people worshiping a hunk of gold. In his frustration, he takes the tablets and he slams them down and shatters them. And he shares the commandments with the people, but they don't have them written any longer. So later on in Exodus, God again records the Ten Commandments for Moses. And in doing so, we see in Exodus 34, this encounter that Moses has with God. His second time receiving the commands of God. And there's a few key phrases in this passage that show us that God is revealing his very nature, his very character to Moses. Let's read these verses together. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. There's our first indication that this is a character reference to who God is. Anytime you see, especially in the Old Testament, but even all throughout the New Testament, someone's name being proclaimed, it is a descriptor of who they are. That's why we see often even New Testament names. You'll see uh, someone is son of someone else, right? You see, you see son of as a descriptor, part of their name, it describes who they are. Oftentimes they'll be described by their, their, uh, their position. I'm a carpenter, or I'm a fisherman. It's part of who they are. And God himself has revealed his name to Moses earlier in the book of Exodus when he says, I am that I am. I am all things. I encompass all things. I created all things. I am before and after all things. God is describing himself in a name. And here we see the Lord proclaiming his name to Moses. This is a character description for Moses. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Here we see a revelation of what God does based on who God is. Now, if there are some troubling words in that passage, take heart. We're going to look at that passage here in just a moment at more depth. 
But what I want us to understand is that God has revealed himself to us. We can know who God is. God tells us about his character, and we can read the revelation of who God is all throughout Scripture. And the first conclusion we come to is that God's character is perfect. God's character is perfect. Now, notice I did not write God's actions are perfect, although that is a true statement. It's more important that we realize God's character is important. It's the chicken and the egg. Does God do perfect things because he's perfect? Or is God perfect because he does perfect things? What is it about God that makes him perfect? Is it his actions? The fact that he always does good and is benevolent towards his people? I dare say that his actions are a mere reflection of his character. It's more important that we realize the essence of who God is, is perfection. It's not just that God does love, it's that God is love. It's not just that God does perfect things, God is a perfect God. Therefore, anything God does must be perfect. There's a lot to wrap our mind around, so let's look at several passages of Scripture that tell us about who God is, who His character is, and why He acts the way He acts. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, tells us about this rock. The rock, His word is perfect, for all His ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is He. Now, notice the, the, the train of events. God is perfect, therefore he is faithful and without iniquity or sin. It's because God is perfect that he cannot sin. In John, we learn more about his character. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If you're describing God, a great way to describe him is as a spirit, a spiritual God. He is not bound by physical flesh. Now, who is he and what does he do? He can act in and out of flesh, but his character is one that transcends and is above even our flesh and bones. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Notice there it doesn't say because God does love, although he does. It's his very nature of who he is that God is love. A lot of verses here we're jumping around. Colossians 1.16, we see that God is a creator. That's who he is. And because of that, his actions reflect it. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Because God's nature is a creator, he creates. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. His character is faithful. And because his character is faithful, look at the action. He keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to thousands of generations. We see over and over and over again, God's character is this, and so his actions are that. We have to understand that everything God does is good and perfect. But then we come to a passage of Scripture like Exodus 34. And we see some of God's characteristics that that we like. And we see some of God's characteristics that if we're honest, we do not like. Let's look at Exodus 34 one more time. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The very character of God is one who is a forgiving God. I tell you, if there's anything we can take comfort in this morning, it's knowing that we serve a God who at His very core is a gracious, merciful, loving, and forgiving God. One who does not want to punish transgression and sin. His desire is forgiveness. We love Exodus 34, verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. Because of this truth, God is love and He cares for us infinitely. Because of God's nature, we see His steadfast love, His forgiveness, His mercy, and His grace. But if we're looking at the full character of God, we need to read the rest of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Doesn't this seem opposite of the passage we just read? God is a loving, forgiving, merciful God who by no means will clear the guilty, who will see the sins of the Father and punish His children and His children's children and His children's children's children. And the the punishment for sin will continue for three and four generations. Does this seem opposite of the character we just looked at? Does this seem like we have a duality of a God? There is a God of mercy and there's a God of wrath. Does it seem like we're worshiping two separate gods? We read this passage and we realize God is revealing His full character to us in one small passage. It's important that we understand both God's perfect love and God's perfect justice. It is not one or the other. We hear all the time that that God is love, but do we understand that God is also fair and just? That sin will not go unpunished. Praise be to God that sin doesn't have to be punished on us, that Jesus Christ has taken that punishment. But make no mistake, all sin is punished. Are we accepting that the character of God is one who not only punishes sin, but He punishes it to the third and fourth generation? Isn't this difficult to swallow? Why should my children suffer for my sins? Why should my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren suffer for my sins? And yet, don't we see this effect of sin? Instead of blaming God and being angry, can't we witness this by looking at our own modern setting? How oftentimes parents' poor decisions affects their children and puts them in a pattern that ultimately affects their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. It's not just that God desires punishment. He desires forgiveness. But there's a warning that the effects of sin continue on past our own lives. We don't like to look at this side of God, but let us remember that God's character is perfect. When we read difficult passages of Scripture and we ask ourselves, God, why do you speak this way? We have to remember that God only does what is right and what is perfect. You and I don't like everything we read in Scripture. Can I admit to you as your pastor that there are things I read in the Bible that I accept as truth, but I don't like? Is that okay? I I don't like hell at all. As a matter of fact, I really hate hell, and I wish God had another way to, to show His justice. 
I'm imperfect and I cannot come up with a different way. Sin must be punished. I don't know how to do it, but I hate the idea of hell. Can I tell you, God hates the idea of hell. He tells us in the New Testament that hell was not created for human beings. It was created for the demons and for Satan. It was not created for people at all. And yet, because of our sin, many who die apart from Christ end up there. It's a truth I do not like. I don't love Exodus 34, 7, when it talks about judging the guilty and the sins of the father being passed on to children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is something I don't like. But it's okay to accept that God is perfect without understanding fully how he's perfect. Just a couple of weeks ago, we uh, had a couple of little visitors at our house. Now, we, we typically um, haven't had this problem anywhere else we've lived except for Kentucky. Uh, for, for four years, we've lived in a mouse-free home in Robinson. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a little visitor come. Uh, Hannah called me in and said, is this what I think it is? And sure enough, a little mouse had left us little presents all over our stovetop. It was not fun at all. So we set out to catch the little booger. There ended up being two. The first one, I set sticky traps out and we didn't catch anything. And so I thought, well, I've read if you put a little bit of food, so we put a little bit of cookie, I think, on on top of each trap and hoped to catch it. We were trying not to tell the girls there was a mouse in the house, yet there was impossible for them not to see the traps and ask questions. And so we had to share with them, we're hoping to catch a mouse. Well, sure enough, that second morning, I wake up with Josiah and I can hear in the kitchen a squeak. And I know something stuck to the trap. I hadn't gone in there yet. I just sat down with Josiah, got him settled in. And Ashton comes downstairs. She turns on the TV and I said, Ashton, do you hear that noise? She said, did we get one? I "I think we got one. And she's excited to get rid of the mouse. Can I go see it, Daddy? Hmm, Well, that probably wasn't my best idea. But yeah, sure, let's go take a look at it together. Now, granted, for two days now, she has been wanting to get rid of this mouse. She hates the idea that there's a mouse. She's scared to go into the kitchen, just like all the other women in my house. We're we're trying to get rid of this pest. She wants to see for sure that it's been caught. And we go in, and from a distance, she sees this little mouse stuck on a trap, and her disposition changes. Aww. It was a cute little guy, wasn't he? He was. Well, what are you going to do with it, Daddy? (laughs) Well, honey, I'm going to take another sticky trap and put it on top and squish him and suffocate him and throw him out in the trash. What? No! You can't do that. Can't you just let him go? No, he'll come back in, honey. Here's what this turned into. She wanted the mouse gone, but she wasn't wanting to accept what had to happen for the mouse to be gone. She wanted for there to be a mouse-free home. But the path to get to a mouse-free home is not one she really wanted to embrace. How many of us want the justice of God? Want a God who is fair and unbiased and always does what is right? Do we want a God who is just? But many of us don't want for God to do the things that are just. They make us uncomfortable. We don't like them. Much like the ladies in my house who saw a cute mouse and didn't want it to die, we have a heart and want no one to perish or suffer. And yet the very nature of who God is, the way to accomplish His justice is to 
to not clear the guilty, but to punish the iniquity of the father, even on multiple generations. This is what is right and what is fair. This is the effects of sin. This is what happens when we delve into sin. And we want his justice. We want his perfect character. But we often don't like the means by which his perfection is shown. This morning, when we find difficult passages of Scripture, when we open it up and read about his wrath, can we remind ourselves that God is perfect and always does what is right? Even through these difficult passages that seem barbaric and seem strange to us, we know the character of God is perfect. Therefore, his actions are always, always perfect. Sometimes we don't like what God does. We don't know why God allows cancer. We don't know or like that God allows our loved ones to pass away. We don't like that we have suffering on this earth. And so we tell ourselves that God does evil in these actions and therefore God cannot be a good God. Can I tell you, that is a lie. We serve a perfect God and while He allows sin to continue, it is always for His perfect will and His perfect goal. God only gives good and perfect things because His character is perfect. Something else we take great encouragement in is not just that God is perfect, but that God's character is unchanging. It is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We don't have to be afraid that one day God is going to snap and that He is going to decide enough with this perfect character. I just want to send wrath and punishment for no reason whatsoever. We never have to worry about God being unjust or unloving or changing his mind. God's character is unchanging. That's why we say he is eternally perfect. He has always been perfect and he always will be perfect. Revelation chapter 22 verse 13. Jesus, God, reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. God says, I have always been And I have always been God. Always been perfect. I have never changed. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says exactly that. For I the Lord do not change. God remains constant. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ, God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God remains the same. I hear people say all the time that that there is a a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. And people don't mean this when they say it, at least I hope they don't mean it, but they almost portray it as two separate gods. Well, in the Old Testament, God was full of wrath. But in the New Testament, He's full of grace. As if something happened between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew that changed God's disposition. He used to be an angry God. But now, because of Jesus, He's a happy God. I tell you, God does not change. There is mercy and grace and forgiveness all throughout the Old Testament. Sure, you see justice and wrath poured out, but you also see love and forgiveness. You see a worldwide flood, and you think of the wrath of God punishing the people of the earth, but you see His mercy and His grace to save Noah and his family and start fresh. You see God's forgiveness in a, a king, David, who commits adultery and murder. 
and yet God blesses. You see, Job, who is suffering, and his friends say, why do you have to deal with this suffering? And God look and say, I'm going to, to bless you and restore you. Over and over again, we see God's blessing. We see God's grace. We see God's mercy, even in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, let us remember that God is a God of wrath. There has been no place in all of history that God's wrath has been poured out more than in the New Testament death on a cross. God demonstrates his full wrath through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God is a God of grace and a God of justice and he always has been and he always will be. We don't have to fear that God is going to change his mind. We can read as in Numbers 23 verse 19 God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's character is perfect and that will never change. It will eternally be the same. We never have to fear that God is going to give up on us or abandon us or stop loving us. We never have to fear that God is going to remove that mercy and that grace. God is always going to be a forgiving God, always going to be a merciful God. He is always, never changing, always perfect and maybe most importantly on God's character is not just that he is perfect not just that he is unchanging but God's character is personal oh the beauty we have that we serve a personal God Exodus chapter 34 that we began reading is a perfect example of how God is personally involved with his creation all throughout history, there have been multiple religions, and each one has a different God with different attributes and characteristics. The ancient Greeks had many gods, including the, the head god of Zeus, who was very prone to changing his mind and, and throwing bolts of lightning. He was personally involved with his creation, but not perfect and certainly not eternal. You can see modern day religions like Islam that will tell you there is a perfect and eternal God, but he is not a personal God. He doesn't care about you as an individual. He cares only about his own selfish glory. He does not care whether his people thrive or whether they perish. But we serve a God who is both personal and perfect. And in Exodus 34, we see the perfect God interacting with Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. Hear this perfect, transcendent, seemingly unattainable God stands before Moses. And he interacts and speaks to him as if they're friends he reveals himself, reveals his name, descends and passes before him. God cares for Moses. He is a personal and loving God. We see that continue on in the New Testament. And the greatest act of God's personal character is when he himself, God himself, becomes flesh and blood and stands before all of humanity to Die on a cross and forgive us of sins. 1 John 3.1 shows us the personal nature of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. 
that we should be called His children. And so we are. You are not just God's created being. Although you are, you are so much more. God cares and He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you and He wants to be your father. He wants you to be His child. You can never understand His character fully. You can never know everything there is to know about Him. But you can know this today. He loves you perfectly. His desire is to give you forgiveness and grace and mercy. And He has to punish the sin in your life. But a simple confession to Him as Savior and Lord, all that punishment is laid on the person of Jesus Christ. And no longer do you have to pay for that iniquity. When God reveals himself to Moses, Moses responds with the only way I think is proper in Exodus 34, 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. When we serve a God who is perfect in all he does, a God who never changes and will always do what is right, and a God who wants to have a personal relationship with us, our only response is to bow our heads and worship. Let's pray together. Father, your character is beyond what we could ever imagine. Lord, there is no way we could fathom who you are, but we know who you are is perfect. And so everything you do must be perfect. Lord, we thank you that you don't change your mind. We thank you that, that nothing that you do will ever, will ever be for our detriment, but only for our benefit. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you call us your children. Lord, this morning I'm very aware of the fact that we stand before you unworthy to call you Father and yet privileged and blessed enough to be your children. But we pray that each and every one of us would know with certainty that you are our Savior to forgive our sins and place them on the cross. That you are our Lord to show us how to live, to lead us in a, a life according to your will and purpose. Lord, let us put our faith and trust in who you are and the salvation that you give. It's in your name we pray. Amen.